3: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring My Trustmark online and mobile banking. Monitor accounts and information, transfer funds, create special alerts and reminders. Details at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC.
1: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, November 13th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, what can the state legislature do to help schools improve? find out why education advocates say funding and school choice should be at the top of the list. Then, does violence in church change the conversation on where guns belong? Officials weigh in. And a Mississippi senator is asking for answers to the low performance rating for the state's two veterans hospitals. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Education advocates are debating school issues ahead of the 2018 legislative session. Funding and school choice topped the list during a forum at Millsaps College on Friday. The panel of education advocates talked about what the public should watch for when legislators debate the issues in January. The Mississippi Adequate Education Program formula has not been fully funded in some 20 years. Advocates agree funding should be transparent and the public must have a voice in the process. Democratic Senator David Blunt of Jackson tells our Desiree Frazier tax cuts are affecting education.
4: Well, education is going to be a critical issue in the upcoming legislative session. Uh, a lot of the cuts that we're seeing in education are the direct result of reckless tax cuts, uh, and it's affecting Uh, tuition at community colleges and universities. It's affecting our ability to fund our public schools and we need to revisit those tax cuts so that we're able to uh, grow the state's economy by improving the education of our people.
5: The argument for the tax cuts has been to make the state more competitive and that the state is at a disadvantage for trying to draw businesses because of the franchise tax. How do you weigh that against um, what you are saying about retaining those taxes at the risk of economic development?
4: The cost of the tax cut bill over the next 20 years is $6.7 billion. If that bill was repealed, the state of Mississippi would have $6.7 billion without raising anybody's taxes. This is a tax cut that has not yet taken effect, and we would have $6.7 billion to spend on roads and bridges, on infrastructure, and on education without increasing taxes, and that's what we should do.
5: What will you be advocating for in terms of a funding formula come January?
4: The funding formula that we have right now is fine. Now, any formula can be improved, but essentially the funding formula that we have is fine, and we ought to fund it. Uh, The other main issue that I'm going to focus on in the upcoming session is supporting our community colleges. Our community colleges do a great job. They help put people to work, and that's the way to grow the economy in Mississippi. Thank you.
1: Nancy Loom is executive director of the Parents Campaign. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the state's children should have their needs met. It's
0: absolutely critical that we have a funding formula that is equitable and that provides sufficient resources to make sure that every student in every school and every teacher has what he or she needs to provide a great education for for our kids. Mississippi is never going to meet her full potential until we decide to educate all of our children well, and that takes resources. Of course, those resources need to be spent well, but they've also got to be sufficient, and we've not done a good job of making sure that we provide sufficiently for our students.
5: You talked about poverty and how the state has more poor children than any other in the nation, which uh, places a, a burden on Mississippi. How do you teach children who lag
0: behind and get them up to speed? Well, you know, that's what our teachers are experts in, and that's what they're doing every day. They need enough time on task for those kids. They need interventionists. They need uh, technology. There are all sorts of things that teachers need to have in their toolbox to make sure that they're able to meet the needs of of these students. We need small class sizes, Um, and, and a first step in that is Fully funding the formula that we have now or ensuring that we have a formula that, that meets the needs of those, those students and those children. But it is those decisions are made at the local level, and they are made based upon the needs of individual students. That's what our educators are there for, is to make sure that students are getting what they need. Come January, what will you be
5: advocating for in terms of funding? Uh, Ed Build has recommendations that have been said that would be more equitable. Well, we'll be
0: looking at any legislation that's put forward that uh, proposes to change the, the current funding formula for schools. In any case, the process needs to be transparent. There needs to be plenty of time for advocates and citizens, parents, teachers to review the legislation that is proposed, and to weigh in and comment on that to understand what the impact would be on their own children and their own school districts. So first and foremost, we need a transparent process that engages the public in those decisions. There is really nothing more important that we are deciding than the way that we will provide an education for our children.
5: One thing that you raise is the issue of, in response to school choice, you have some concerns about that.
0: Yes. You know, some people are pushing for vouchers, which in essence is a taxpayer-funded system of private schools. And so they want taxpayers, these families, to pay for a system of private schools that that their children wouldn't be allowed to attend in many cases. And we think that is unconscionable. And when we ask, okay, well, let let us see... What are those teachers teaching? What is the quality of education that's being provided? The response to that is, oh, that's none of your business. These are private schools. Public funds are for the public good, and that means that public funds should be for public schools where every child has a place and no child is going to be excluded.
5: And so you have two issues dueling going on here. You've got education funding and then using that funding for charter schools, um, for moving students to other public schools or private schools as a debate. That's right. A challenging
0: situation. That remains to be seen. We'll, we'll see. Thank you. Thanks so much for having
6: me.
1: Grant Callen is president of Empower Mississippi. He tells our Desiree Fraser more decisions should be made locally.
6: That I think while this discussion about a funding formula is critically important, it's insufficient. You know, simply having a debate about how much money we spend and how it's distributed, while that's important, what's most important is who controls it. And we think those decisions need to be made locally about who controls education dollars, either in the local school districts, amongst principals and school leaders, and most importantly, parents parents must be able to decide how education dollars are spent and where what schools their children get to attend.
5: You talked about school choice. Why is that an issue? Um, They also talked about the high rate of poor students in uh, Mississippi and when you have school choice it is plausible that you might end up with poor children being left behind.
6: Look for people who have financial resources they already have school choice. Every day across this state, people with financial means are making decisions about where to live based on the quality of the schools. They're paying for private school tuition. But if you are a low-income family in Mississippi, you don't have those same choices. And so the, the movement for school choice in Mississippi is about poor students having the same access to a high-quality education that people of money already have. We've got to extend those choices to people who don't have the money to move to better school districts and don't have the money to afford private school tuition. Thank you for
5: speaking with us.
6: Thank you.
1: Samford Johnson is Deputy Director for Advocacy at Mississippi First. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he hopes people follow what happens during the session.
7: I think it's important for everyone to pay attention to what happens in the legislature over the next couple of months related to these recommendations. Um, the recommendations are just that, recommendations, and it's going to come down to the legislature to decide what's going to be in an actual bill. Like, what is the base student cost going to be? What are the weights going to be? And also, what are we going to do moving forward to make sure that we're, that we're maintaining the formula? Um, making adjustments to it, adding to it as we go forward, rather than having these 20-year gaps where we're not really addressing the needs of students.
5: What is the point that you want to get across?
7: We have an opportunity here to have a funding formula that will be more equitable, which means that every student gets the money that they need in order to have a successful academic career, be it a low-income student, an English language learner, a gifted student, or a student in special education. I think that there are a lot of good things that have come out of M.A over the last 20 years, but we need an updated formula. And I think that the EdBuild recommendations would create that formula if the legislature follows those recommendations.
5: You um, expressed concerns that if something isn't done, maybe this might be an issue for voters come 2019.
7: Well, I think one of the uh, key things to having a more equitable funding formula is that legislators need to know that there's a political consequence to not providing the money needed for students. And I think in the past, I don't know if legislators really thought that there was a political consequence, but if legislators feel like there's a political consequence to whatever action, then they'll do what's right for kids
5: there's only so much money to go around which we heard uh so divvying up those funds i mean legislators don't want to be in a position where they have to at, have to provide a certain amount of money regardless of what may be coming down the pike for the state so how do you balance that
7: Well, I think the balance is making sure that we're using state funds in the best way possible. And that's why I was talking about eliminating that 27 percent rule and making sure that money is going to the students and going to the districts that need that money the most. But we're also going to have to talk about revenue. We have not been willing to have that revenue question. What do you mean? Um, We're going to need more revenue, like period. Um, What tax needs to be increased? Um, How are we spending the money that we're spending right now? are we raising enough money in the state of Mississippi to make sure that we're covering our basic needs? And that's not just for education, but it's about highways, it's about health care. There are several different things, like are we raising enough money as a state? And we need to have that conversation.
5: Briefly, can you describe the 27 rule?
7: So basically, uh, every uh, local school district has to have a local contribution to the total cost of educating students in that district. It's either 28 mils or $28 for every $1,000 of property value or 27% of the total student cost, so that's sticker price. There are some districts that could pay a lot more based on or contribute a lot more based on what the value of 28 mils would be, but because of that 27% um, cap, they don't pay as much. Uh, and they get a lot of state money. So for some districts, it could be a couple of hundred thousand, maybe a hundred thousand dollars extra. For some districts, it could be millions of dollars of state money that they're getting when they have the ability to contribute more to the funding formula. So what we're saying is that by eliminating that 27 percent rule and requiring every district to contribute 28 mils towards the local contribution, then we'd have money that we can reallocate to low-income students, English language learners, gifted students, and special education students.
5: Thank you so much. Appreciate your
4: time.
1: Coming up, does violence in church change the conversation on where guns belong? Officials weigh in. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
5: An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz. 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio.
1: Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Faith-based leaders in Mississippi are considering safety measures now that a church shooting in Texas has raised concerns. Some churches are turning to security teams and armed guards, while others are continuing without major changes. The issue of guns in churches sparked debate in the state last year when the Mississippi Church Protection Act was passed. It allows places of worship to designate members to undergo fire arms training that gives them legal protections. Opponents have said it endangers people by putting more guns in untrained hands. The recent attack has put questions about gun use back on the table for some. Lorenzo Neal is pastor of New Bethel AME Church in Jackson. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall about the practices of his congregation.
8: My congregation already had uh, a form of that in place, uh, not officially. But we had something similar in place. And when the law was written, my advocacy against it was not so much against the idea of having a, a well trained armed um, security guard for churches with the proper credentials. It was just the idea that those persons who are part of the team are, you know, be well vetted, and that just individuals by themselves shouldn't just bring their weapons into my church. <laughs> it might be some type of rogue nation kind of thing.
2: So you don't have a problem with trained security detail like that being armed at the church?
8: No. From my perspective, in my opinion, uh, I've been to churches where there have been those type of details, and those persons have been well-vetted, and they've been well-trained, and the members of the congregation are fully aware of who they are. Not so much as uniform or anything like that, but they're usually, you know, you can verify that these persons are part of, That team Um, in smaller churches such as mine, it'd be a little more difficult trying to put together a full team, you know, because it may disrupt the idea of uh, what some people come to church for, you know. I don't want to give the wrong impression that okay, we have these people here, and yeah, they may be for your protection, but at the same time, I wanted you don't want to come across as saying that they are like police officers. (laughs)
2: This issue kind of is close to home for you because you are yourself a survivor of gun violence. Tell me about that.
8: I've been directly impacted by gun violence. In 1980, my 25-year-old mother was killed through an act of domestic violence that involved a gun. And in 2016, just this past October 2016, my 18-year-old nephew was killed uh, through an act of gun violence. So that's part of why I advocate as a gun violence prevention advocate.
2: How has that affected your life, your your ministry, your current stance on gun control?
8: I don't want to come across as trying to control God, I believe, in the Second Amendment and the right that it invokes, uh, that it gives us to have. But it did frame my idea as far as ministry.
2: Pastor Lorenzo Neal of New Bethel AME Church, thank you very much for visiting with us
1: today. Thank you. Major Chris Back is with the Biloxi Police Department. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall the law has guidelines that must be followed.
3: Well, it certainly gives the uh, the church and the congregation a peace of mind. You know, should they decide to uh, go with that law and uh, select the uh, suitable people in their congregation to be the armed guards, so I think it is a good thing.
2: So the law doesn't allow just any average congregant to come to church packing
3: right they have to be selected then they have to go through a, the concealed carry uh, permit process and then once they're selected and they go through the process they have to be uh, if you will announce the congregation who they are so it's just it's not just anybody that can do it
2: and they have to go through a, a, a training process and, and agree to certain criteria uh,
3: yes sir they have to go through the background check uh thorough background check and training process. There's certain criteria, meaning that they can't just carry anywhere. You know, even though you have a concealed carry permit, you can't uh, bring it to a school, you can't bring it to a, uh, a legislative building or, you know, so forth. Um, you can't bring it to a church unless you're one of these designated people.
2: Have you heard of churches implementing this or how they're doing that? Or the The people that are on the security team, I mean, would you would a visitor walking into the church be able to immediately see this person is is wearing a gun that I can see, and that either makes me feel safer or more uncomfortable?
3: Well, the way the law reads is, you can either do a concealed carry or open carry, but the congregation is supposed to know, or the board is supposed to know who these people are. So, if the person was designated and, and was concealed carry, then uh, they should the people should know, you know, that that person is potentially armed as far as law enforcement goes, uh, as the, the law reads, you know, we can we can go to that church and ask for the record and say, you know, hey, who's who's supposed to be armed? And they're supposed to supply that information to us.
2: In your experience, have you heard of any churches that have either specifically decided to implement this or have maybe talked about it and decided not to implement it?
3: I know that there's churches that are looking at it, but any specific churches that, that have implemented it or are in the process, I've I couldn't tell you at this time.
2: We see unfortunate events um, like the situation in Texas last weekend, the situation in Charleston a couple of years ago, and different other places where there have been uh, still significant, but, you know, incidents where fewer lives have been taken. Is it your feeling that this ability for churches to offer this kind of security will help to re- hopefully reduce the number of instances like this?
3: I think in any situation, you know, any of us need to be aware of our surroundings. But, uh, you know, that peace of mind, I think that's what's most important. Somebody going to, if it's a place of worship or whatever it may be, um, it gives that person the peace of mind that they're, they're safe while they're there.
2: We've been speaking with Major Chris Deepak of the uh, Biloxi Police Department. And uh, Major Deepak, I appreciate you taking time to talk to us this morning.
3: Sure. Anytime.
1: Thank you. We reached out to the Episcopal Diocese of Mississippi. Right Reverend Brian Sage says it's a policy of local option. In a statement, he says, while the Church Protection Act offers immunity to individuals, it does not offer that immunity to members of the local congregation or the diocese. The Catholic Diocese is also maintaining its gun-free policy. Coming up, a Mississippi senator is asking for answers to the low-performance rating for the state's two veterans' hospitals. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio.
1: This is Mississippi Edition. Both of Mississippi's veterans' hospitals are not performing as well as others nationwide. The rating system compares all 146 VA medical centers across the country in categories like quality of care and access to care. More than half showed improvement. The Veterans Administration's 2017 Hospital Star Rating gives the Jackson Hospital two stars out of five. The Gulf Coast Medical Center in Biloxi received one star. Senator Roger Wicker says... Mississippi veterans deserve better.
3: I was extremely disappointed to learn that our state's two VA medical centers have again received low ratings because Mississippi veterans deserve better than a two-star and a one-star medical center.
1: Senator Wicker is asking Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shultons for a plan to make things better at both Mississippi hospitals. Dr. David Walker is director of the GV Sonny Montgomery VA Medical Center in Jackson. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby the hospital's goal next year is to earn three stars.
9: The goal is to continue to improve. We've been working and we have been improving and there are ways that I can show you and show the public that we are improving. The star system that's used can take Uh, a long time before it actually increases to the next star level. But we are improving. We're actually outperforming the community in many areas. We filled major leadership positions within the last year, and we're moving in the right direction. But I agree with uh, uh, Senator Wicker that a two-star is not acceptable, and we are going to improve, and uh, we have been transparent about it. I've even been meeting with all the congressional staffs every quarter to go over how we're doing so that uh, there's no secrecy. There's no this is actually uh, that this information is out there. What's the hospital doing a good job of at this time that, let's say, it wasn't doing so well uh, a few years ago? So one of the things is we've actually filled major leadership positions. And it's hard to run any large uh, corporation, hospital, with uh, vacancies. The other thing is uh, our nursing uh, turnover uh, got too high. Uh, We've actually had a hiring fair and we're now bringing in uh, nurses. And there's a separate star rating for our nursing home, it's a four star. So there are areas uh, that we've actually shown, shown significant improvement and one particular area is actually looks at your, your ICU, your intensive care unit. And basically, we are uh, very high in the, in the country on how we're doing in that area. And then the area where we've had the most improvement is outpatient. What are some of the challenges the medical center still faces that drag down that rating to a two-star? One is time. This particular system has things in it that, you know, are averages over three years. So if you're going to improve an average over three years, it takes time. And so behind the scenes, when I can look at, okay, by quarter, am I improving? Am I heading in the right direction? The answer is yes. Thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. You're welcome.
1: According to the website veteransdata.info, there are nearly 200,000 veterans in Mississippi. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. At 10, it's Now You're Talking. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. And join us tomorrow at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring My Trustmark online and mobile banking. Monitor accounts and information, transfer funds, create special alerts and reminders. Details at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC.